want to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever dropped something that is precious to you, like a cell phone? And it's almost as if time slows down to a crawl as you move every part of your body trying to prevent that thing from falling to the ground. I think watching someone try to catch their cell phone before it smashes on the floor may be one of the funniest things you'll ever see. I know that doesn't sound very sympathetic, but it's true. People who can't even, you know, bend over and touch their knees look like Olympic gymnasts trying to get that phone and save it before it crashes. You know, we instinctively seek to protect the things that we love. It's just a, a, a part of our expression of loving them or loving this, this item. We want the best for them. We want to protect them from things that could harm them in some way. I think we do this naturally over the course of our lives, but there are certain times in our lives, certain occasions where it becomes our number one priority. And the end of our lives, if we know about it in advance, is one such time. So if, the, if a doctor told you that you had a very short time to live, what would you do with that time? You knew it wasn't going to last long. Your time on this earth was coming to an end. What would you do with that time? Many of you remember Mary Peterson, the wife of the chairman of our elder board, Berv Peterson. She experienced that. Before she went home to be with the Lord just over two years ago now, she knew she didn't have long to live on earth. And so what she did with that time was to protect the things that she loves the most, her children and her grandchildren. And what Mary did was she invited them individually, all of her children and the grandchildren who were old enough, and she met with them one-on-one. -on -one. And she talked to them. And she communicated to them what is most important, having a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And Mary wanted them to know the peace that God had given her, that she would soon be with Jesus. She wanted them to have that peace by trusting in him as well. And she didn't want them to be angry with God that she was dying. She wanted to trust the Lord instead. She wanted them to know that she was going to be in heaven soon and be no longer sick. And that one day they would see her if they trusted in Jesus as well. And that she would always love them. And according to Berv, one of her granddaughters said that it was that conversation with Mary that made her faith in Jesus real. Mary spent that time with her children and her grandchildren because she loved them. And her desire was to protect them and to communicate to them the most important thing in this world, that a relationship with Jesus Christ is necessary and possible. Their faith in the Lord was Mary's greatest concern. And so she sought to protect them from the satanic lies that might lead them to doubt God and not pursue a relationship with him. And in our passage this morning, we see that exact same concern from the Apostle Paul for a group of church leaders from the city of Ephesus. He called them to meet him. He never expected them to see each other again, and he wanted them to know what was truly important. And our passage this morning is found in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32. I encourage you to follow along on your cell phone, your tablet, but if you need 
there's a blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. Our text is found on page 930. So I encourage you to, to open it up to page 930. We'll be looking at some other verses in Acts chapter 20 as well. But here's the main point that I want you to walk away with this morning. That God protects his church through his people. And that means you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you have an important role in protecting his church. Let's look at our passage. Paul writes, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You can see from the, the outline in your bulletin, that we're going to cover two dangers that Paul warned the Ephesian elders about. Those that come from outside the church and then inside the church. And then he gave two solutions or two commands, really, on how to address those. They were to guard themselves and then guard the church. And then there's one hope he leaves us with, one hope in God to get through the battle that we will be facing. I want to give you a word of uh, uh, application as we approach this passage. He Paul was speaking here to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. But it doesn't mean that what he's saying doesn't apply to all of us. On, on many levels, actually, it really does. And you may even be surprised at how it applies to you, even if you're not in a position of leadership. Well, Paul, before he met with these leaders, he was on his way to Jerusalem. And he stopped in this town called Miletus, which is where he called the elders to meet him. It's about 30 miles away from Ephesus. So if they were driving, depending on traffic, it could have taken them 45 minutes or so. Uh, if they were walking or on a mule, probably a couple of days. Uh, so it was a little bit of a sacrifice for them to get, get there, but they loved Paul and they wanted to see him. And so they met him. And one of the things you see about the Apostle Paul as you read through his letters and in the book of Acts is Paul loved the church. He absolutely loved the church of Jesus Christ. He put the welfare of the church ahead of his own welfare. His chief concern in this address to the leaders of the church in Ephesus was to protect the church. He understood very well that it would be under attack by the evil one because the church belongs to Jesus and Satan hates Jesus. It's really that simple. And the dangers that Paul warned these church leaders about are ones that we actually face today as well. We are no less vulnerable to. So the first point is this. There are two dangers, outsiders and insiders. The idea of God's people being called a flock or sheep, that's, that's common in Scripture. Most of you would be familiar with Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Continuing that imagery, Paul describes those who seek to harm the church from the outside as fierce wolves who won't spare the flock. What comes to your mind when you think of a fierce wolf? I, I kind of picture a, a wolf with almost like a demonic, you know, these demonic looking eyes that are staring right at you, right? These teeth that are wide open, almost drooling. 
sharp like razors, ready to pounce on you and rip you apart. That's about it. That's scary to me. I don't know about you. Now, I think that's what made Paul's analogy so striking, is is that you and I don't see false teachers in that same way, right? Sometimes we look at false teachers and we think, well, you know what, they're harmless. They're, they're misguided, but, but harmless in some way. We, re- we really need to understand the danger. That's why Paul would use such an analogy. They are fierce wolves who do not spare the flock. I don't know if you've ever seen a wolf attack. Probably not. You've been spared that. But if you've ever seen it graphically done in a movie, you realize just how frightening this would be. Not sparing the flock, Paul writes. Paul says, actually. Luke writes. They show no mercy. It's not as if, you know, wolves attack someone and after a while they go, well, looks like he's had enough. Let's get out of here. No, they they finish the job. They're there to destroy. They're there to kill. And Paul says that these outsiders are just like their father, the devil, who the Bible says is a roaring lion who seeks to devour Christians. Paul uses such strong language so that you and I do not understand do not misunderstand how destructive these individuals can be to individual Christians and to the local church. And how do they do this? I think three, at least three ways. One, they deceive Christians into believing lies about God or the gospel or God's word. They also distract Christians. They move them into something that's a little bit less important, something that's not eternally significant. And they also destroy Christians through moral compromise. They deceive Christians, they distract Christians, they destroy Christians. And all three of these tools leave the church weaker and thus more vulnerable. But because we can only see the outward appearance and only God knows the heart and the true motives, again, I want to remind us that we need to take God's perspective on this more than our own. Because like I said, we can look at people like this and we think, you know, they're, they're, they're misguided, but they're likable. You know, they're wrong, but they're harmless. God's teaching is they are dangerous and they are doing the devil's work. And it doesn't mean, of course, that we attack them first, but it means we are very, very careful around people who lead us astray from the gospel. The second danger is men from among you, he said. And that must have broken his heart to say. He's speaking to church leaders and saying, men from among you will arise speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. And this second danger is actually more, more deceptive than the first, although it's no less dangerous, because these are people that we think we know, and so we're more inclined to trust them in some way. They're already in the church. We can possibly see them doing ministry in some way, and yet they have the same razor-sharp teeth as these fierce wolves. It's just that they hide them. They hide them with a smile. You know, in 1 John chapter 2, the apostle John wrote about such twisted teachers. He said, they went out from us because they were never really of us. But as he admits, for a time, they were in the church. And they may have had a position of leadership or a teaching role. And Paul said that the goal of these people is to get others to follow them. In verse 30, it says, to draw disciples away after them. They could be motivated by pride or power or money. Those temptations will always be too strong for some people to resist. But their goal is to take people and move them away from following Jesus and to get them to follow themselves instead. 
And you know, their methods don't have to differ that much from the fierce wolves. They're still trying to deceive, distract, and destroy. They deceive so that they won't know that they're not following the truth anymore. And unfortunately, that happens to Christians. They distract so their focus isn't on God's word, but it's on something else. It might even be on something that's good. It might be a, a, a worthwhile, a noble cause. But that cause isn't the gospel. And your focus can get distracted. And they seek to destroy. Because if they destroy you, you can't put up a fight against those who would otherwise harm the church. Paul would have repeated this message over and over again to all the churches that he ministered to. He would have given this warning. Let me give you one example in Romans chapter 16. And listen to how Paul describes these people. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's both a warning and a great encouragement, right? So how do we keep ourselves from falling under the influence of fierce wolves and twisted speakers? Well, Paul gives us two, solution, two solutions in this passage. And the first one is to guard yourself and then guard the church. Look at chapter 20, verse, uh, verse 28. Paul says again, Be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So you and I have the responsibility, just as the leaders of the church in Ephesus did, to care for our own selves. Since the church is a flock, God has provided what we would call under-shepherds, pastors, elders, the term is used in, in ex, uh, exchangeably in the New Testament, under the authority of the chief shepherd, Jesus, to guard the church. And just, just like a good shepherd of real sheep, they are to be constantly diligent to lead and to guide and to feed the sheep. Because if the leaders don't stay faithful, if the leaders don't provide an example of godliness to the congregation, then the devil uses that to discourage others. Maybe even in your own Christian life, you've seen someone who's, who's in leadership and you thought, boy, if, if, if he can't obey God in that area, what hope do I have? And the devil uses that to, to discourage us so that we don't pursue God as vigorously as we should. But on the other side, godly people inspire us, don't they? Even though we know they're flawed and even though we can see their flaws. But godly people inspire us to greater obedience. When we see how they handle things, when we see their maturity, when we see how they confess their sins. But leaders who fail morally or who are actually known for, for patterns of sin habits of sin, and they don't confess that, and they don't repent. They harm the spiritual lives of many people. And so Paul says, guard yourself spiritually. In other words, they and we are to guard ourselves so we can be spiritual examples for members of the church, just as Paul was for them. Now, what does that look like? There's, there's a lot of ways that we can describe that. I, I think if we just stick with Acts chapter 20, 
what we see is that Paul is giving an example to them of his own life. He's recounting the way that he ministered to them. So that in hearing that, they can go, ah, that's, that's what I should do. And just for the sake of summary, I've identified four qualities from his ministry uh, that all Christians, not just church leaders, should emulate. And they're this. I'm going to go through them more slowly. But humility, love, integrity, and courage. Now, if you, if you reorder those, it actually almost spells the word chill, which is great as the impending storm and the cold, water, cold weather comes in. So maybe that'll help you remember it, right? If I want to be godly, I just got to chill. I mean, I think that's still a thing, right, young people? Right? So it's, you got to forget one L. C stands for courage, H for humility, I for integrity, L for love. That's what Paul modeled. And that's what every one of us should model, especially church leaders. But all of us have the opportunity, the responsibility to do that. How did he demonstrate humility? Well, in verse 19, he says this, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. Which is an odd thing to point to your own humility, right? But his life backed that up. And what he was saying was he saw himself first and foremost as a servant of the Lord. That demonstrated humility. But secondly, his humility was demonstrated in consistently putting the needs of other people ahead of his own. That's what Paul modeled. That's what church leaders are to do as well. That's what all of us can do. Second is love. Twice in this chapter, Paul admits to something most men wouldn't admit to even once. He admitted to crying over the churches. He said it twice. In verse 19 and 31, his love for them was so great that it brought him to tears. Tears of joy when they were doing well spiritually and no doubt tears of sorrow when they disobeyed the Lord. And he was grieved when they did that. And I think that's a great test for all of us. Is our love for the church such that when we see brothers and sisters failing, when we see them walk away from the Lord, that we grieve to the point of tears? And when they're doing well, that we rejoice to the point of tears? Or those of us who don't cry very much, we at least think about it, right? We're, we're close to thinking about crying in some way because, we're, because our emotions are tied to what happens to our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul did. That's what he modeled. Third is integrity. In verse 33, Paul described how he worked hard in addition to all the ministry that he did in churches. All the evangelism that he was doing. He worked hard to meet his own needs. He was a tent maker. He made tents and sold them to to meet his needs. And not only to meet his needs, but also to be able to give to others as well. In addition to that, he said that he, he never coveted anyone's silver or gold or their apparel. How you and I handle money is a matter of integrity. It's another test of our spiritual maturity. It's an opportunity for us to protect the church or actually harm the church, make it more vulnerable in some way. Not only how we handle the money that we have, but how we pursue it. What do we do with it? Through our generosity, through our integrity with what God has entrusted us, we can protect the church. And then lastly was courage. This is a big one in Paul's life. In verse 19, he writes about serving the Lord through trials that happened to him through the various plots against him. Twice Paul wrote that he told the Ephesians what God wanted him to say even though it was difficult and would not be well received. And that takes courage. If you want to look in verse 20, he says this, I did not shrink from declaring to you what was profitable. And then in verse 27, almost the same thing. I did not shrink from declaring to you 
the whole counsel of God. He didn't shrink. He needed courage because it would be difficult to do that. But he knew that's what God wanted him to do. Telling people the truth, I think, may be one of the more difficult things that God wants us to do. It does take courage. God has called us to do it because it is necessary to protect the church. But sometimes going up to someone and confronting them even lovingly, it's a difficult, difficult thing to do. We lack the courage because we're afraid of the consequences. But Paul approached it head on. In fact, he did it to the, uh, to the Galatians, and he writes, he writes to them as a result, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And sometimes that's what happens, right? You tell someone the truth even humbly and lovingly, and they don't want to hear it. So how do we pay careful attention to our spiritual lives? As Paul instructed the Ephesians el- Ephesian elders, we-, we need to ask the Lord to help us. Help us to evaluate, are we humble? Are we putting other people ahead of ourselves? Or are we putting ourselves ahead of others? Do we love them? Do we love them sacrificially? Is their future something that we genuinely care about? How about our integrity? How about our courage? These are four ways that we can guard ourselves and thus protect the church. The second solution is this. We need to guard the church. We need to guard the church. First we guard ourselves, then we guard the church. Now what does that look like? I think one of the keys to guarding the church is that you and I, we have to trash any low, wrong view of the church that we have, and we need to replace it with God's high view of the church. Because you're not going to seek to protect or guard the church if you don't love it. When telling these church leaders to pay careful attention to the flock, Paul added three critical truths in verse 28. These are essential, I believe, to guarding the church against attacks. The first one is this, he says, that the Holy Spirit is the one who appoints the leaders in the church. He appoints the elders and appoints the pastors. They are in their positions, even though they are flawed people, because God put them there, right? That means that they are accountable to him. The Bible is very clear about that. And I have to tell you that when I was a new pastor, this truth really strengthened me to have conversations that I did not want to have with people. I just had this clear impression that that God had put me in the seat that I was in. It's almost like God was saying, Bill, I put you in this seat to communicate my word to people. And if you don't do it, then I can take you out of that seat at any point and put somebody else in that seat who will do it. It's a reminder to all of us, God will use us if we're faithful. And if we're not, there will be consequences. Number two is that the church belongs to God. They're to care for the church of God. Now, I don't know about in your home, when you grew up, and maybe you have a brother or sister who borrowed something of yours, and you always knew that if they borrowed something of yours, they would take really good care of it because it was yours and not theirs. Same thing's true in my home now with the kids. I know that if there's something comes up missing, it has been well taken care of. So if I say, like, where's my headphones? And the answer comes back, oh, well, they're on the kitchen table uh, in the half-eaten bowl of cereal. I'm, I'm completely surprised when that happens, and I just take them out and dry the milk off. And Actually, that's a bad example, isn't it? That's the opposite example of what I want to give you. We are to care for the church because it belongs to God. And I have to say, I just think sometimes we don't think of it that way, right? We just see the surface of it. 
We see one another. We see all of our flaws. We see all the problems with the church. But we need to recognize that even the flawed leaders are put in there by God and that the church belongs to God. You and I are not going to love the church if we don't recognize the church is the bride of Christ. Try treating someone's bride poorly. Usually the husband's going to get pretty upset about that, right? If you and I don't have a high view of the church, then we're at odds with our Heavenly Father. And the third thing is this, that God obtained or purchased the church with his own blood or the blood of his own son. This demonstrates the high value that God places on his church, the great cost with which he purchased his people. And so who are you and I to devalue it? If we're going to guard the church, we have to love the church. If we're going to protect the church, we have to see it the way God does. And I, I have to confess, I, I love the church. I, I love Moody Church. I'm so thankful to be here. And yet I sometimes see the church from a fleshly standpoint, as I suspect you must as well, right? There's somebody sitting in front of you. They're too tall. They're, they're bugging you. They're eating food in the sanctuary. They spilt something and it rolls all the way down to the front and gets on your, on your foot. They sat in your seat this morning. You know, I'm going to stop giving you reasons not to love the church. I'm sorry. <laughs> but here's the question. Do you see the church that way? And if you don't, ask God to help you. Because you can. We can see the church. God put together everybody that's here for his purposes. The ones we're naturally drawn to and the ones that we're not. In verse 31, Paul makes clear what seeing the church this way does, what it looks like in a leader's life. He said this, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish every one of you with tears. That level of love can only come from having a high view of the church. Church leaders and church members must look beyond the surface. We have to look and see what God is doing in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. You may be familiar with what C.S. Lewis wrote about that. He said, if you and I could see right now what our brothers and sisters in Christ will look like in heaven, we would be so overwhelmed, we would be tempted to fall down and worship them. The glory of God that will be revealed in them in heaven. We certainly don't need to go that far, but let me ask you again, do you really love God's church? If you don't, pray and ask God to help you, because you will not protect it if you don't. I think sometimes it's just much easier to see the church as a place that we attend an hour or so. Yeah, we have friends who are here. But we need, to, we need to love the church enough to see our role as guardians of the church, as protectors of the church. Because when you think about it, how can two dozen elders and pastors, which is about what we have here at Moody Church, how can two dozen people protect a church that has about 2,500 or so who call Moody Church their home? They can't, not effectively. Church leaders can be voted out. Pastors can be fired. A whole new group of people can come in and they can move the church away from the gospel and it wouldn't even take that long. It's happened in, throughout history many, many times. It's happening now in churches and, and even in denominations that are moving away from the gospel further and further. So consider this. If you are not guarding your spiritual life, you may be one of the people that the church needs to guard itself against. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Things that you believe and are telling other people may actually have been condemned as heresy in church history. When you see surveys of self-proclaimed evangelicals and many of whom say, Jesus is not the only way to heaven. Hell is imaginary. The Bible is full of errors. 
That's heresy. That's not true. And many self-described evangelicals believe those things and are telling other people those things. It's deeply troubling. But if you are guarding your spiritual life, including your doctrine, then God calls you to love his church and to protect it, just as you seek to protect your own spiritual life. It's like Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He wrote, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now here's, here's my, my fear. My fear is that our greatest obstacle to this is actually apathy. Not that we hate the church. It's that we just don't care enough about it. I mean, life is busy. We are easily distracted. I was watching a, a, an interview with a couple just this past week, and uh, they worked really hard in their 20s and in their, maybe their mid-30s, and they set aside a, a nest egg, and they said, we're just going to live off the interest. About $40,000 a year is all they're going to live off of. So here they are in their mid-30s, both retired. Remember the, one, the guy said, he goes, I could be retired for the next 50 years. And they did that so that they could focus their attention on their family. They've got a couple of kids, two or three kids. And they wanted to just enjoy their lives and enjoy their family. They didn't talk about their faith at all, so maybe they're not Christians. But they put their time together as a family ahead of any material possessions. So no cars, just rides a bike. I think they live somewhere warm. They buy second-hand clothes. She said, why well, go to a mall? I want things like everybody else, but I'd rather have the time off. I'd rather have the time with my children. And as I watched that, I thought, you know, some of you would grab that in a moment if you could, right? Most of us feel like we're way too busy. Life is way too crazy. And when, when you come to church and you hear, well, you're, you know, you, you need to protect the church. You need to guard the church. You think, I, I, I'll add that to the to-do list, but man, that's going to be so low I can't keep up with my laundry. I don't know how I'm going to add that on there. This made me think there are probably more radical changes that you and I could make to our lives. However the Holy Spirit is leading us that would enable us to give more time and attention and focus to whatever God is leading us to do to advance his kingdom. I'm not saying everyone needs to volunteer at the church 40 hours a week. But I think one of the things I learned from that, that video is I feel like in some ways we may be trapped in the lifestyle that we're pursuing. And it no longer, we no longer feel free to do what God's calling us to do. And so let me just give you some examples. And as the Holy Spirit takes these, use them. And if not, move on to something else. But maybe some of the time that you spend on recreation should be spent discipling a young married couple. Because maybe your investment in their lives could save their marriage. And maybe some of you should be teaching a Sunday school class because God is prompting you to do that. And somebody else filled the gap, someone was faithful, but they wouldn't be as effective. Maybe God wired you with the right personality and the right gifting to minister to that group of people for this season. But you, you can't consider it because you're too busy. Our prayers, our giving, our service, our relationship with others, all of these are used by the Lord to protect his church. But if our attention is elsewhere, if our focus is elsewhere, and we ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit, then everybody loses. And the church is left more vulnerable and unprotected in the areas that God is leading us to. The Lord has given all of his people gifts and resources to strengthen and thus to protect his church. And as we use them, 
According to the Spirit's leading, we, pro- we play an important role in protecting his church. Now, this may seem a bit overwhelming, right? You're looking, oh, it's just, again, you've just given me more to do. I don't think it is more to do. I think it's more sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But here's the last point, though. I think Paul ends on a, on a great word of encouragement. The one hope that God is able, God is able to do this, Right? Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Just as it takes more than the leadership of the church to protect the church, it really takes God's help and the power that he gives us through his gospel, the word of grace. And that's why Paul commends the Ephesian elders and really us to the Lord. And he specifies very quickly three ways Three ways that the gospel helps us to do that. Number one, it's able to build us up, which means it it helps us bring bring us to spiritual maturity, a part of which is an increased ability to hear from the Holy Spirit. Number two, it's able to give you the inheritance that God promises his people. In other words, it actually, it's a promise that God is going to bring you to the finish line. And then third, it's able to sanctify you. It's implied there that we'll, we'll be among those who are sanctified. It's going to, this gospel is going to make you increasingly like Jesus. We see this gospel power in the life of the Apostle Paul. And we should be wonderfully encouraged. It's actually available to us as well. Remember what I said earlier. God protects his church through his people. Through us. That's how he protects his church. And he empowers his people to do extraordinary things in fulfillment of God's call upon our lives to do just that. I think the key verse, look at verse 24 in Acts 20. Paul says something really remarkable here. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Isn't that remarkable? Right before this, Paul Paul is telling the leaders that the Holy Spirit is impressing upon him, you have to get to Jerusalem. He said, I don't know what's going to happen, except I know this, two things, imprisonment and afflictions. That's what the Holy Spirit is telling me is coming. Most of us would say, then I don't go to Jerusalem, right, Lord? If afflictions and imprisonment are, are, are my way this direction, I change directions. But Paul's like, no, no, no. That's where I'm headed. That's where he's leading me. The gospel had so taken hold of Paul's life that he just wanted it to advance. He wanted to finish the mission God had given him. Finish the course. Finish the race. He didn't consider his life precious, more precious than obedience to God. Didn't didn't mean that he wanted to die. Didn't mean he didn't care about that, right? Although, because Paul was able to see heaven, God gave him a, a glimpse of heaven in a vision. He knew what was waiting for him. It must have been hard then to kind of look around and go, yeah, I'll stay. I'll stay a little longer, right? So he, he struggled with that for a good reason. But Paul was willing to die for Christ, and that fueled his life. Consider what he wrote in the very next chapter, chapter 21, verse 13. They're, they're, they're crying for him. He said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Remember what Pastor Michael said a few weeks ago. If the mission of your life isn't the mission of the church, then you are wasting your life. If we we just pause and let that sink in, 
the responsibility that you and I have as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. For many of us, I think it's going to take a reorientation to how we live. We're not going to be able to add that to the long list of things that we have to do. It has to be a fundamental reorientation of how we live. It's the glasses through which we see everything. I am called to make the mission of the church the mission of my life and protecting it as a part of it. So Christians have a clear God-given responsibility to protect the church. All followers of Christ with unique gifts and responsibilities have the same God-given responsibility to strive to protect the church of God. Whatever local church it is that God has called you to for this season of your life, what you and I do in public and in private either protects the church or it makes the church more vulnerable. It is an awesome responsibility. And so throughout our study in the book of Acts, we've been asking the question, what does it mean to be the church? This is what we're called to do, to be the church. The standard is high, but we don't have to do it in our own strength. All of the strength of Almighty God is available to us. The power of the gospel working through us, but we must do it. Our hope is ultimately in God. Our mission is from God. God's unique responsibility for each one of us will be made clear by the Holy Spirit. We are to protect his church and to advance his kingdom. In closing, consider where the Lord has us as a church. It's been now about two and a half years since Pastor Lutzer stepped down and became the pastor emeritus. It's actually coming up on four years since he announced that that would happen. Some of you are struggling with that. You don't have to. We are in God's hands. Our mission is clear. Our hope is in God. We do not need a senior pastor. A senior pastor would be very nice. And by God's grace, we're going to have one. But we have the great shepherd. We have the chief shepherd who watches over all of us. We have everything we need to fulfill the call of God upon the life of Moody Church right now and your life. If we needed a senior pastor right now, we would have one. And I'm surprised as you are surprised. But I want you to be encouraged. Our hope is in God. Our provision comes from God. Our mission comes from God. All we need to do is live it. Just live it. Be the church. Guard your spiritual life. Guard it. Guard your life and your doctrine. And having done so, guard the church of God, this precious church that was purchased with the blood of his son. And may God help us to take more seriously our responsibility to be the church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to not walk away this morning, unmoved by what your spirit is calling us to do individually. In a passage like this, there's a lot to take in. There may be only one thing that you're calling each one of us to do. One response to this passage that will help us to protect the church that is so precious to you. Father, we don't want to be one, ones that need to, to have the church protected from. We want to give careful attention to our spiritual lives we want to guard your church. We want to glorify your name. And so, Father, do that, we pray. 
with the power that you provide for the glory of your name, for the good of your church. May Moody Church be the church in Chicago that you call us to be. Amen.